Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. We're going to start in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15, and read through the end of chapter 2. Um, we will kind of just glide over some of this uh, because it's a lot of what we've been seeing in Galatians. And so if you remember in the book of Galatians, some false teachers have come in to some churches Paul has started. They have tried to undermine his authority, distort the gospel. Paul's not happy about that. And for the past couple of weeks, Paul's been on a single-handed mission to prove that the gospel that he's preaching and has preached to the Galatians is one he got directly from the risen Jesus. A human being didn't teach it to him, and the mission that he has to preach to the Gentiles is a mission he got directly from the risen Jesus. Uh, church didn't give it to him. Any particular leaders didn't give it to him. And we'll see him kind of continue that theme this morning. In chapter 2, we pick up in verse uh, verse 11. I'm sorry. Um, but when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Remember, Cephas is Peter. Um, we were just talking about a meeting in uh, earlier in chapter 2 between the Apostle Paul and Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem. So this is a different event. Antioch is probably the second biggest church in the early Christian world and in the biblical apostolic times. And Antioch is a very unusual place because Antioch is a mixture of Jewish and Gentile Christians. There weren't a whole lot of these churches around at the very beginning, and there definitely weren't a whole lot of big ones around and very powerful ones around. And so in a lot of ways, the church of Antioch always stood in a little bit of a tension with the church in Jerusalem. If you'll remember from the book of Acts, um, Antioch is, in a sense, the home church for the Apostle Paul and his travel partner Barnabas. They send him out on mission. And so Peter comes to Antioch. And when Peter comes to Antioch, as Paul tells the story, Paul opposes him to his face because he stood condemned. We'll keep reading. We'll see this. The, the language here, stood condemned, is not condemned by Paul, but it's condemned by God. Um, Paul is uh, of the opinion that Peter does something um, drastically wrong here. Verse 12, For before certain men came from James in Jerusalem, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. So Peter's eating with the uncircumcised. He's eating um, meat that is not kosher, hasn't been prepared right, things of that nature. But when they came, this circumcision party from James, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcised circumcision party. So Peter gets a little peer pressure here, and all of a sudden he stops eating with the Gentile Christians and starts eating with the Jewish Christians who are following these Mosaic food laws. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. If you remember, Barnabas and Paul are very close friends. This had to have been a pretty deep betrayal felt on the part of Paul. Verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, this lets you know how serious Paul thinks this is. This is not just a preferential thing. This is not just like a, hey, they're funnier. They tell better stories. 
I'm going to go eat with them. I never liked the bacon to begin with, so I'm going back over to this kosher, kosher group. When he saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, so public rebukement here, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? There's a couple clues here to what may have been happening here, although some of this is still just a little bit of speculation. First, we might give Peter some credit. Peter was the one, after all, who got the vision from God saying, what God has made clean, let no man call unclean. So Peter, as far as Jewish Christians from Jerusalem goes, is on board for the most part with this idea that food has been made clean by Jesus that previously was considered unclean. And so he perhaps is more sympathetic to Paul's uh, mission to the Gentiles than others. Um, But you see this word force here. Or in other translations, you might see it um, used compel. Um, It appears as if either through the the impact of peer pressure or through some more overt um, situations that Peter and the other Jewish Christians had separated and in so doing were either explicitly or implicitly starting to force the Gentile Christians to follow these kosher dietary laws. If you've been tracking it all through our study of Galatians, you know for Paul, this means you no longer have the gospel. If the gospel is Jesus plus Jewish nationalism, Jewish cultural preferences, Jewish uh, Christ, Jesus plus the now, Mosaic law, then it's not the gospel at all anymore. Um, at heart here was table fellowship. Um, for the most part, um, we've seen the big issue is circumcision. Here, though, it's table fellowship. Um, here, though, is a passage that might directly apply to one of the things I love most about our denomination, the disciples of Christ, which is that we practice open communion. That means you don't have to be circumcised to take communion at our altar. That means you don't have to, honestly, we don't want to know, really, okay? So keep that information to yourself. It means you don't have to be a Republican to take communion at the altar, you don't have to be a Democrat to take communion at the altar. You don't have to be a U.S. citizen to take communion at the altar. You don't have to not have a warrant out for your arrest to take communion at the altar. The table is open. And this is in its sign, both symbolic of the truth of the gospel, that there's one people group created under faith in Christ, and to a witness to the very truth of the gospel. If faith in Jesus does not create one people, diverse, who come together with boundaries being broken down, then the whole very work of the gospel gets called into question. Now, as we keep reading in chapter, in verse 15, um, people wonder whether Paul has stopped talking to Peter or whether he's continuing his kind of rebuke of Peter. Um, what most likely is happening is Paul starting to generalize his language so that it applies both to Peter here in Antioch and to the false teachers in Galatia, and also perhaps Christians in Galatia that had been um, following their advice. In verse 15, he says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth. So he says, look, James, look, Peter, look, these Jews in Antioch. We are, including myself, Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. We're not separated out of the Jewish community by these works of law. Yet, he says, we know that a person is not justified 
by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. A couple big notes here. When he says works of the law, we should capitalize that L. It's not just works of the laws and generally following good rules. Um, Paul here at the Galatians, the false teachers, Peter, they're not talking about earning your salvation. As if the choice is between having faith or doing stuff in order for God to accept you. They're talking about specifically following specific Mosaic laws in order to be justified. There's a lot of ways to translate this word justified. Historically, since the Protestant Reformation, we've all used the word justified, and so it's come commonplace. Um, I might suggest perhaps to just make us more unfamiliar with the text, which I think is always useful for us. We might use the word rectified here. Um, that this is God's act of rectification, um, making things right, okay? And you'll see Paul is appealing to a tradition that they all believe. We ourselves know, as Jews by birth, that a person's not justified by works of the law. They, he says, we know this. We know the works of the law don't rectify us, don't make things right. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified or rectified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Let me give you a quick rundown of what the shared tradition is that the Jewish Christians and the Apostle Paul here are believing, this shared uh, tradition that he's referring to. One, they believe that justification or rectification is an act of God, okay? Things are wrong in the world. Things are wrong with human beings, And so God needs to justify. God needs to make things right. The second thing that um, this shared tradition believed is that transgressions against God's covenant, particularly committed by God's people, have made things worse. God's called a group of people together to help in this process of justification, rectifying the world. And since they have themselves rebelled, the people with the cure have decided not to participate in healing the rest of the world. Things have gotten worse. And so this means that what makes this um, right, what this rectification will involve is forgiveness, is mercy. Um, the Jewish people need this justification just as much as Gentiles because they need Um, God's mercy here. And the Jewish Christians, just like the Apostle Paul and Gentile Christians, believe that God's justification or rectification has come because of Jesus. It's not by being more strictly adherent to, to these kosher laws that God will make things right. It's not by being more strictly adherent to these circumcision laws that God will make things right. It's the act of God in Jesus Christ that makes things right. I also want to point out to you another important translation issue here. Um, If you're reading along in the ESV with me, um, you'll see these uh, as I just read them. Any other translation, you'll probably see them the same. Increasingly, though, biblical scholars have come to think we've mistranslated some phrases in Pauline literature. Um, I myself have very little doubt about this anymore. And so I want to suggest we read things a little bit differently here. In particular, find this phrase, faith in Christ. I see it at least twice in this first little paragraph we just read from verse 15 to 16. 
This, this phrase, faith in Christ, is in Greek ambiguous. In English, we have prepositions. And the prepositions make things, not all the time, but usually a little easier for us to understand. We can still get confused. I can say things like the love of God, and we can still wonder, legitimately, am I talking about someone's love for God or God's love for that person, right? Of can work both ways that way. Well, in the Greek, they don't have that preposition, so they add different endings to words. Um, and those different endings to words provide the relationship between those words, um, or the ofs, or the ends, things like that. Um, and faith in Christ is notoriously an ambiguous phrase. And it can be interpreted mainly in one or two ways. Objectively, which would mean that the faith is placed in the object of what comes after it. Jesus. We translate that faith in Jesus. Our faith is in the object of Jesus. Or we can translate it subjectively, which would mean Jesus is the subject of that faith. And that might strike us a little bit odd, right? Jesus is faith, the subject, Jesus having faith. But you can think of faith in a broader context. Think of faithfulness. Think of obediencenness. Think of a mission. I would suggest to you that we need to read these phrases and others throughout the New Testament, maybe not all of them, but many of them, as faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So let's read 15 through 16 one more time, and I'm going to parse it for you the way I would parse it for you if I was translating this from Greek in a Greek class. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Notice a couple things that stand out here. The first is all of a sudden we have a contrast between human endeavor and divine action. What will make the world right? What will make individuals right? Is it our adherence? to the Mosaic law, or is it the decisive act of God in Christ? Is it his death and his resurrection and his spirit working in us that will make us right? Or is it something that we muster up by following the dietary laws correctly, by following the circumcision laws correctly? Paul here is saying, It's not what we're able to do more or less correctly. The deciding event in all of history, the deciding event in all of salvation is what God has done in Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. His acting out the will of God to bring the kingdom of God, to bring salvation to all of creation. This paragraph is is kind of poetic, actually, if you, you look at it. He repeats a couple important thoughts over and over again. The person's not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we believed in Christ Jesus so that we can be justified in his faithfulness and not by the works of the law. And for one more good measure, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now it seems here Paul thinks this is a shared tradition. They believe this as well. He's just pointing out to them their hypocrisy. Look, you knew all along. We always had this Mosaic law. 
was it fixing anything? Was this God's big plan to, to redeem people, to make people right? No, it wasn't. We were waiting on an act of God to justify us. And this act of God we've correctly identified as Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Now in verse 17, But if our endeavor to be justified is Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For I, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to Christ. Verse 20 is really the, the, the verse I want to focus in on this morning. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Galatians 2.20 here has long been one of those verses that I've memorized. Has long been one of those verses that I, I try to spend time contemplating on. It's one of these verses that no matter how many commentaries you read, you're not going to find like a very scientific answer that explains exactly what Paul was talking about. What does it mean that I've been crucified with Christ? The life I live now, I live through him. But there are some very interesting things we can notice about this verse that hopefully, and here's my only real goal this morning, not super ambitious, is to draw you into the mystery of this statement and to perhaps allow you to enjoy it in prayer, enjoy it in conversation, enjoy it in your own spiritual formation throughout the week and perhaps throughout your life. Paul says this, I've been crucified with Christ. Um, the word here is to be literally crucified next to somebody. Uh, you would use this word to describe the criminals who were crucified next to Jesus. Um, a lot of people would, would translate this, I've been co-crucified with Christ. When Christ crucified, was crucified, I was crucified. When he died, I died. Now this is on face value, not true. Paul is alive. He's writing this letter. Wasn't around necessarily when Jesus was crucified. You and I reading this letter, finding these statements true of us, have certainly not been crucified. Unless you have a very interesting story and you survived somehow. I'd be interested to hear it. This is, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's important to notice that the, the, the locus of this text is not on death itself. If you'll pay attention, the word life is mentioned, I think, four times right afterwards in the immediate context. This is not like a funeral party where he's just celebrating the fact that he's been killed. He focuses on his participation in Christ's crucifixion because of the life that it enables him to live now. The first step, I think, to understanding this is to understand for Paul what it meant for Christ to be crucified. And for that, I want us to look at Galatians chapter 1. I don't have to flip a page in my Bible, your Bible. You might have to, to go back to the very beginning of chapter 1. 
when we read this, I said we'd probably be coming back to this a handful of times throughout Galatians. In verse 4, Paul gives us his atonement theory. So his belief on what happened when Jesus was crucified. And he says this, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will and God of our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. For Paul, the crucifixion was an act of war. It was an act of invasion. It was a decisive act where God came into a world enslaved by evil rulers. Sin, death, Satan. It was a decisive act where where God came in through Christ into a world that was organized rebelliously against God. In which human beings like you and I found ourselves in relational disorder with God himself, with each other, with creation, where he came into a world where people were sick, where cancer ruled, where children were hurt, where governments were oppressive. And if you remember this present evil age language, is very technical Jewish language because the Jewish people believed that God would one day decisively act and end this present evil age and rescue his people out of it into this new age, this new creation. And for Paul, the crucifixion is when that happens. In this sense, we call it apocalyptic. It's an act of war, an act of rescue. Apocalypse by itself really means unveiling, showing you something that might not be obvious at first glance. The crucifixion is like this in a couple ways. At one hand, it's just real nails into a real person until they really died. But for Paul, there's a deeper meaning to be unveiled there. For Paul, this is when the powers to be were defeated. In other places in the New Testament, he'll say they were embarrassed on the cross. This is when the victory of God defeated the powers of evil on the crucifixion. And so for Paul to say, I was crucified with Christ, is for Paul to unite himself powerfully with Jesus. To say, I participated in that crucifixion. One way we could talk about this would be to say, when Jesus was crucified and and delivered a defeating, decisive, final blow to this present evil age, he wasn't the only one who was the recipient of that. See, the scriptures say Jesus walked out of death. He went into the door of death, walked out on the other side where sin can't touch him, where death can't touch him, where he lives eternally in pure joy and peace and eternal life. For Paul, he considers himself so closely united with the work of Jesus on the cross that when Jesus was crucified and walked through that door into new life, it was if Jesus had this like tethering unit on him and he took the little clip and he had placed it on Paul's belt and he said, hey, I'm not coming alone. You're walking through this with me. And as I died and now as I'm resurrected to new life, guess where you are? You're past this death of the evil age. 
and you're now resurrected into this new life. I don't know if you saw this or not. I want to say it was July 4th. Someone was protesting, and they climbed up the Statue of Liberty. You want to see this? Um, they didn't get too far up the Statue of Liberty, although even the bottom, I think, is pretty high off the ground. And it took a while, took a, took a big effort. It was a pretty impressive response by first responders. And they had set up this huge pulley system to, one, ensure their own safety, and two, to try to get this protester down. And it was kind of, it was kind of moving to me as well because she was protesting. She says she was going to stay up on the top of the Statue of Liberty until all the families that had been separated had been reunited. Um, and I can definitely understand uh, you know, that, um, that wish. Uh, I also can definitely understand people being like, that's just not an accurate timetable, if that is what's going to happen. Um, and then you have these first responders on July 4th who had to be called away from their families, things of that nature, to come and risk their lives for this person who was protesting. And it was, uh, it was kind of a moving scene to me because you could see how gentle they were to her until she was on the ground and got arrested. (laughs) But they were very much concerned with her life. And they had this huge system of pulleys and harnesses, and she was attached to like six people and a bunch of ladders and all these things. And I thought it it was a unique picture, right, of your fate is bound to my fate. And my fate is bound to your fate. And I'm going to rescue you in such a way that when I reach safety, you reach safety. For Paul, this is what his participatory language looks like in real life. The fate of a Christian, the one who places their faith in Jesus and his faithfulness, is a person whose fate is bound up with Jesus' own fate. If you look at Romans chapter 6, if you'd flip with me there, um, Paul says similar things in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Romans 6 verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know, here we go, that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. For Paul, I don't think this is just cute, symbolic language. I think Paul thinks vicariously Jesus has done something and he's done it for us. This word vicarious, here's a way we might understand it. All too often we think of salvation as an external gift. So Matthew and I are talking, I have this thing called salvation, I box it up, I put a bow on it, and then I hand it to him, and now he has it. And it has really nothing to do with me anymore, right? I might have done it, I might have put it in the box, I might have given it to him, but he's accepted it, and now it's his. For the scriptures, and particularly Paul, salvation is not like that. Salvation is intrinsic to Jesus himself. Salvation is not something Jesus gives you. It's something you find in Jesus. Does that make sense? You see the difference there? Salvation is something you receive when you are united with Jesus. So we're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, 
with him by baptism into death. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 2, Paul self-biographically is saying exactly this. I was killed with Christ. And like Christ, once he was dead, was no longer bound to sin, was no longer bound to death, was able to live fully and completely alive to God the Father. This is the most true statement about me. This is not a psychological trick I'm playing with myself. This is not a motivational pep talk I give myself. This is the truth. Through the power of the Spirit, I died with Jesus. And because of that, I can live to God. I can consider myself dead to sin. I can consider myself no longer touched by death, no longer afraid of death, no longer under death's domain. In Galatians 2, as we flip back, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I want to suggest the spatial language. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul uses this language a lot. Believers are in Christ. They're with Christ. This is participatory language. But I want to, I want to suggest the emphasis here particularly relies on the plane of power on the on the power of orbit i want to say that the risen lord here is extending his space of power by taking up residence in paul that the risen lord who's no longer bound by death who's no longer under in, under control in a world of sin who's now free to live a life pleasing to in front of god that that now is true of Paul, that Paul continues to share Christ's fate, that the event in which the risen Christ seized him, in fact, brought him the life of the risen Christ, that just as Christ's crucifixion and resurrection was a powerful, invasive act for all of creation, it also becomes a powerful, invasive act in our personal lives. The risen Christ lives in us. The one who has gone through death. The one who has conquered sin. The one who now lives eternally in front of God. 
He is the one who lives in me. The cosmic scope of Christ's work on the cross is also dynamically at power inside of me and in and through my life. We often approach the scriptures in our faith very individualistically. I, uh, in about a week, I'm going up to a camp to speak to some middle schoolers. The theme is stranger things. I didn't pick it. Um, but I am working on my outfit. Uh, I think it would be Hopper, if you're familiar with it. Um, and I was reading some promo material, and one of them said, when Christ died on the cross, he was going through all the names of the Christians who would one day be his. And my cynical reaction is like, no, he wasn't. That's silly. Okay. He was probably hurting quite a bit. I'm sure he was praying. I'm sure he was trusting the Father's will. But I really doubt somewhere on that list of billions of names, he was like, Mike Skinner, 2018. Okay, let's keep going. I do think there's, I understand the truth to it, right? I see how it's powerful. I think certainly Christ died for me and for you. I don't think you find that language a ton in the scriptures, but here you find it in Paul. This is fascinating to me. He says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave his life for me. You know, it's easy for me a lot of times to think that the Son of God loves like a future version of myself. And they gave himself because one day I'm going to be something else. But Paul says, no, I wake up. The life I live, I live in faith, the Son of God who, who loves me and who gave himself for me. And I want to invite you to, to think through this passage and to think through what motivates you to think through the things that you think are the most true things about you and your identity. We talked in the past about our spiritual autobiographies as, as Paul narrated his biography. I wonder where your crucifixion fits into that. I wonder where that, that moment you were crucified with Christ fits into your autobiography. I wonder where... I wonder where the motivation when you get up, I wonder where this fits into that. But I'm dead to all of this old stuff. It's still there. At times I certainly feel alive to it. But my feelings aren't truer than God's truth, than Christ's act. I wonder what would happen to myself and to us if when we woke up, this was, this was what got out of his bed. This was what motivated us. This was in the front of our minds when we related to other people. We went to our jobs. When we dealt with our puppies. The life I live, I live in faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By God's grace, I think the more that we can internalize this, the more that we can understand that what Christ did, he didn't do externally from us. 
He did vicariously for and with us. And that's not a past event that carries on to this morning and to tomorrow, into Tuesday, into Wednesday. I wonder how much more we'd be able to access the new creation, the Spirit, which is peace and joy and kindness, self-discipline, righteousness, right relation with God and right relation with others. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear that that you as a child of God, you were crucified with Christ. This is perhaps the most real thing I can ever say about you. You were rescued from all the evil, from all your evil. And you now are invited to live into this glorious new creation right here and right now. Why? Because the Son of God loves you. And the Son of God gave himself for you. Will you pray with me?